Welcome to Brainstoke. I'm Tom Telford with Preston Niederhauser. We have amazing guests with us today. We are going to have Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife join us. She is an amazing clinical therapist. In my opinion, she's an influencer. There's such a following based on her expertise in the mental health space, specifically specializing in human sexuality and marriage counseling as a licensed clinical professional counselor. Welcome, Dr. Jennifer. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Dr. Jennifer, we had the opportunity to hear you live last week in Moab. We actually left that conference and went to Las Vegas, where my daughter and I actually heard and saw Adele in person. And admittedly, I have to say, <laughs> who is better? And <laughs> I say that somewhat of a joke as a lead-in, but... As I sat in the audience in Moab listening to you, I had to look around and just notice these people are as engaged as I've ever seen. And I think it's because, one, the topic of relationships is so broad and so critical to the enjoyment of life. But two, you truly have a gift for how you deliver your expertise in the clinical knowledge of relationships. So we are stoked to have you. This truly is a little bit of a starstruck moment. So thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad you were there. That was fun. It's really my first time teaching clinicians. It's something I've kind of imagined doing, but it was the first time I've really done that, and it was really enjoyable. That is amazing because when you think through just all that you do, you know, you're, you have a room for two podcast, you hold retreats, you have, you know, a huge following on social media. And it was cool to kind of sit there and to watch you mentor and coach other mental health professionals. And you could tell that the audience watching you was, they knew that it was a unique moment because it's not often, you know, like you said, what you necessarily do. That really leads us into our topic today, which is coaching the coaches. And when I say that, I mean you being the coach and we as wannabe coaches, you know, as parents, mm -hmm. trying to learn how to raise children, and more specifically today, how to coach our children into being great in relationships. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. the topic is coach the coaches. And from seeing you live and from listening and reading a lot of the information that you've put out there, we've really narrowed it down to three key plays. There are probably 20 that need to be in every parent's playbook. But three key plays, the first being self-authorship, the second being personal authority, and the third being fitting in versus belonging. So maybe to kick it off, you can share a little bit more about yourself if you'd like, but then dive into this first play, which is self-authorship. Yeah. Okay. So, gosh, there's so much to say, but I, I think that, you know, I, I, I started my work, um, primarily interested in helping people around sexuality. Uh, that was the focus of my dissertation research, and I also cared very much about marriages. Um, but as I've been in that space helping couples over the last you know, 20 years and thinking about this a lot, the topics you're bringing up, I have come to really understand how foundational they are in being capable of intimacy. And by intimacy, 
I mean, being capable of knowing and loving another person and being known and loved by them. And we tend to think of those as like, well, of course, who doesn't want that? Aren't we all capable of, of love? Because even babies love. And that's true. But our real ability to really know and cherish a person who is different than us, that wants different things than us, meaning in an intimate partnership, takes a level of capacity that a lot of us resist growing into. And self-authorship is, and self-authorship and personal authority or second are, are very highly connected to each other. The definition of personal authority or self-authority is basically the ability to internalize all the mores and rules that you've learned in the society and group you belong to, but taking those internalized rules and principles and determining who you are relative to them. What do they mean to you? How are you going to integrate and utilize those ideas for how you forge your life? And so you are basically authoring your life. You are defining your life through your own gifts, your own creativity, your own agency. But it's not to get approval of others. It's about being true to something in yourself, even though that is a creative unfolding not a predetermined one. But it's a lot harder than we think. Um, Self-authorship is not rebellion. It's not, I'm doing what I want. Screw everybody. <laughs> uh, you know, that's, that's defiance of authority. Self-authorship requires the ability to be a thoughtful, reflective, personal authority in our lives. And that means we have to grow through certain dependencies and stages to become capable of it. But we all resist it because it requires the risk of invalidation. It requires the risk of our individuality. It requires the risk of not fitting in, to your third point. Um, and so while I think we all cherish a sense of agency and a sense of autonomy, we're also very afraid of it. So I can keep going, but maybe ask me what questions you have so far before I say more. Yeah, I mean, to frame it to a certain extent, the way I think about maybe the challenges that we as parents trying to coach our children, you know, yeah. is that we're trying to raise them and protect them as they're young. And as they get yeah. older, we want to figure out this balance between protecting them and yet allowing them to become adults who function, right. you know, independent of us. Yes. And so that kind of dependence, interdependence, you know, how do we transition to yeah. my kid isn't functioning. They're not getting off the couch. Like I want them to go do and become. And yet it's possible that I'm part of that smoothie that we have created interdependence. Right. Good. So I, I think there's three challenges. One is just native to development the other is us as parents, and the third is our current society that make all of this challenging. So just going first to development as a challenge is that when we start out in our development, we start out dependent and we have no other way. We, we can't have a sense of who we are except to look to our caregivers and other important people in our lives who are reflecting back a, a, a view of who we are. And if we're parented well, 
and loved well, we're reflected back, you know, this sense of our inherent worth and that we're cherished and beloved and worthy. Even though we're flawed and limited in our abilities, we're still sufficient just because we exist. Um, and when you're not parented well and you're not cherished, you know, you can internalize this deep sense of inadequacy um, and struggle and just kind of this innate sense that you are insufficient because your first caregivers told you so. Um, but even when conditions are ideal, we, we internalize this reflected sense of self and we all love approval. We love validation. We love feeling like we fit in, right? Because belonging becomes an important objective in our you know, our kind of late childhood into towards adolescence. We want to know that we fit in. And so because we love validation and approval so much and it, we're wired to want it because it keeps us safe and it keeps us belonging to a group which matters for our survival, the problem is that it's often at the expense of our individuality. So to your third point, I know I'm jumping ahead here, but it's okay. fitting in versus belonging. This is a Brene Brown concept. I think she did some research on this fitting in versus belonging and found the two were inversely related to one another. But when we are preoccupied with fitting in and therefore betraying what is fundamental to who we are, we never end up feeling like we belong because we have to be someone other than who we are. And so there's these pressures that are just there, even when you've been raised well and loved well, although it's easier if you have, that it's easy to say, I want the certainty of not being rejected over being true to my honest self. So that's a developmental challenge that takes courage to grow out of. And most human beings don't ever grow out of it. They, they prioritize, you know, this idea of fitting in over thinking for themselves, self-determining, doing kind of what is true to their individuality. And, you know, you internalize what it means to belong to a group. You internalize the rules and the mores of your culture. But then if you move into self-authorship, then you dare to kind of know what is, you know, to use religious language, what, what is the spirit of the law? What is the larger purpose here? What am I actually trying to create and do that is right for me and my situation? But again, that's hard to do just for anybody. Then parents are, can be a part of the problem because as parents, we, our kids, and especially in our current culture, feel like they are a reflection of us, right? Now, when you had 17 kids and you were on a farm, if two or three went, you know, astray and were, you could be like, well, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I still got a few left. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But in our current <clears throat> culture, when, when we just have a few children, parents have come to hover much more. And because this is my child and I'm going to take them to this practice and to this thing and they're going to be great at that. And so parents have been overly invested in the, their children's behavior and outcomes in an unprecedented way. And the problem, I mean, parents have always kind of had a sense of self that lives in their children. And this is where parents struggle to self-author is they want other they want the validation of the child being whoever they think is ideal right whether that's a certain career path whether that's they get married whether you know they believe like the parent believes that it's very easy to exploit the dependency your child has on you and and their child's desire for your validation to pressure them to do what makes you feel good 
and which is different than standing up for or holding positions that are good for the child and their ultimate development. And so when, and we all do this to some degree, when our own sense of self gets in, you know, in, how to say it, gets entangled with our child's choices, well, then we are pressuring them not to be true to themselves and to take care of us in their decision-making. As, as parents, how do we get out of the way? How do we let our kids make those choices, even though you want to direct them as a parent towards, you want to guide them to what you think is right and best? How do we stand back? Good. It's a good question. I mean, I think it's not always clear. And, you know, but you want to think about, am I pushing for this because I truly believe it's what my child needs? Or am I pushing for this because this is what I want, right? You know, we can really do a disservice to our children when we're pressuring them to live our unlived lives, when we're pressuring them to be the great thing we wanted, you know. And it it can be confusing because your child may also want it. It might also be good for them to be learning certain tasks, skills, abilities. But when you're overly involved, it just takes some self-awareness and you're partner may also be able to track it in you better than you can track it in you. Is that child feeling like they've got to take care of you in some way by fulfilling a goal that you set for them? So we put a, a lot of undue pressure if, if, yes. we, if we do that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and you can start to see it in your child's, you know, behavior that they're afraid to tell you what they really think or feel, or they start pushing back, they start resisting um, because they feel like you're hijacking their autonomy. Now, again, that's different than I'm setting up rules that I think are good. You know, you, you need to learn math, whether or not you like it. Math's going to be important for you being successful in your life. You know, setting up expectations that help your child build confidence in their capacity to handle the world. That's different than I have predetermined what your self-authorship should look like, (laughs) you know, and that that's getting in the way because of our neediness. And a lot of times you can't see it. You know, I know in my own life, I haven't been able to see it at times until my child was reacting to me or saying, this is not, I don't like this mom. Um, And being willing to look honestly at yourself to see what would it be like to be my child and what could I track about my motivations that, you know, we're not good at seeing ourselves. We can go blind to ourselves, but seeing ourselves through our child's eyes or a partner's eyes can give us a different view and give us more clarity about, about what we're doing. Go, go back to the third piece that you said, culture. Oh yeah. Culture. So I think we're in a society and it's, it's similar because, you know, parents have fewer children now and, you know, it used to be when I was growing up in the good old days, um, days. (laughs) you know, we just roam around the neighborhood, you know, go to other houses, sometimes eat lunch at someone else's house. I mean, there was just a lot more autonomy that was baked into society and was just considered normal. I think it was in the nineties. There was a lot of fear around kidnapping and, you know, um, sexual perpetration and so on, which is good, obviously, for parents to be aware of. But that coupled with smaller family sizes, 
and this kind of hovering to keep our kids safe meant there was a lot more micromanaging play dates, not just spontaneous play. Um, parents sitting there the whole time while the kids are having the play date, right? Just a lot more of parents supervising to an unnecessary degree and not allowing their children the autonomy. I remember walking when I was probably seven years old down to the candy store to buy candy with my friend. You know, not a big deal, but it was probably a quarter mile walk. I'm learning how to pay with money, get change back. I mean, just learning these things that I wouldn't have done that with my kids. It wasn't cool anymore. There's a kind of like a peer pressure that that would be a bad parent to just send your seven-year-old to walk a quarter mile to go to a store. Um, so it's a strange world in which our kids are being kind of basically all kinds of oversight right up until about the time that they start having sexual intercourse for the first time in society. There's like very little of this space in between. Um, you know, when I was growing up, I started my own little business at age 12 to earn money so I could get contact lenses going about door to door selling gingerbread houses and other Christmas things, right? That's just good because I was developing confidence in my ability to handle the world and handle myself. I feel like my own kids, I just didn't give them that kind of autonomy, but I wasn't alone. That was very much what was happening in their friends' houses and with their friends' parents. It's like actually considered bad parenting these days to give too much autonomy. And then a third idea is just we're very preoccupied with psychological safety. And, um, you know, the, the problem is, is that protecting our kids from invalidation and pain does not prepare them to live in the world that's full of adversity. You have to, you've got to be able to go out. When I think about my life, the, the places where I grew the most psychological muscle were in the places I couldn't get validation or I wasn't good at something. This is where I had to find like inner resources and develop capacity. And while validation feels good and I, I love validation, nothing against it, it's not, it's not usually where we develop confidence in ourselves, not true confidence in our ability to handle reality. And so, um, the societal under view of kind of protecting our kids from bad feelings makes them very feeble and more prone to anxiety and depression, which we're seeing in, you know, college counseling centers all over the place and in high schools as well. Dr. Jennifer, one of the statements that you made in some of your materials, and I also heard during one of your podcasts, I just love this, but you said agency is making choices among our sucky options. Yes. And I, I love that because we tend to think good or bad versus this spectrum of choices and all of the, the bad that comes with that. And, to, you know, to a certain extent, that's when I look back on my own development as an adult, that's when I started to realize I am subject to my own decisions and all of the suckiness yeah. that goes along with that, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I was accountable then for my decision-making versus today. I think in a lot of ways, parents think, well, if they make a bad choice, I'm going to be accountable or how's that going right. to reflect on me? So is that what you're saying in yes. terms of building that grittiness of being accountable for your own choices? Yeah. So that's exactly, that's just part of it is like that when your child makes a choice that then has some consequence for their grades or their friendships or something is... 
you can love them in that. You can care about what they're going through, of course, but that's different than rushing in to take away the pain or to take away the consequence because that's the muscle you need to live life well and, you know, to make wise decisions. You know, obviously some choices, there's a very clear upside to one and a clear downside to other to another, and we don't think about those choices. We just do the one with the clear upside. But, but so many of life choices are really we want the fantasy that there is a right way or a way that's going to keep us from having any pain. And that's seldom true, but learning, and this is very key to self-authorship and why many of us resist it. We don't want the vulnerability of having to make consequential choices with limited information, which is what most of life is. We want someone to blame, someone to rush in and take care of us around it. And that's just not how adulthood goes. We have to live in the consequences of our choices, even if it's the refusal to make a choice. And, you know, the sooner we understand that, that those are the baked-in rules, you know, the better we get at tolerating that and the better we do at navigating it. How do we help these kids know that they matter even when we might be at odds with our kids. And I know that's a kind of a vague question, but I, I envision um, some disagreements in a home, maybe my home, and there's some frustration, but I still want my son or daughter to know that whatever decision they make, I still love them. Yeah. They still matter regardless of the, the choices or the yeah. outcomes of those choices. Yeah, well, it's really just how we live in our hearts. I mean, it goes back to this idea, like when our sense of self is hooked to our children, we're going to have a hard time loving them when they're disappointing us. We're going to feel ashamed of them or of <laughs> ourselves. We're going to feel anger, contempt, you know, if they're not doing what makes us feel good, like or like a good parent, and they're going to feel that conditionality. And you could say you love them unconditionally a four million times, but if you don't actually feel the ability to separate their decisions from your love from them, they're going to get infected with that understanding. They'll be able to map it about you. Hmm. I mean, the goal in the, like the, the parable of the prodigal son is like the father that cherishes that child, even if the child has made decisions, the father thinks are unwise that when the child, you know, is coming to himself and getting stronger, that there's, unambivalent love. I mean, the, the, what it suggests is the love was there even when the child was disappointing. And so that requires differentiation, to use one of my words, of the parent to say, you aren't responsible for making me feel good, right? I love you and I hope for you to make good choices because they will have consequences for you. And so but I love you and care about you and feel clear about my responsibility to you. Even if you, even if that path is an uncertain one or that it's a one in which you're making choices that cause you pain, but I'm not going to make it about me. I mean, I find I love my children much better when I think of them as someone else's children. <laughs> and I know that sounds silly, but if I like just talk to them, like there's somebody else's 18 year old. Yeah. Well, I'd be like, what a fantastic kid. Like, really? You know, I, really? 100% true. <laughs> you can see all their strengths and you see all the good and you see they're struggling with something. But if I'm thinking about them as my child, I tend to get overly anxious about the thing they're struggling with. 
um, in a way that's not helpful Yeah, because I'm getting dysregulated by their dysregulation. Yeah. What causes that, Dr. Jennifer, when you think through that? Because, you know, Liza and I often have this, like she is a therapist. All This is what she does professionally. And yet she comes home and to do it in her own home, you know, both of us feel that, you know, that frustration. So is it just that it's a reflection on us, how we do it or the, or is it the emotional attachment? I think Liza should do what I sometimes do, which is remind my kids that people pay for my advice. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I have. And they get it for free. (laughs) The opposite to my clients, you know. (laughs) You ask my children this, they would say, do not listen to anything she says. (laughs) It's true. Yeah, but it's, it's absolutely because it's just closer to our sense of self. Well, and because we just feel a responsibility from the day that baby is born. Mm-hmm. You feel a crazy amount of responsibility mm-hmm. for their well-being. I mean, like panic about, mm-hmm. you know, them being okay. And did you put them on their stomach when you put them on in the crib? I mean, you know, you're just, you're hardwired to be obsessed with their well-being. And I think that part of parenting well is, is growing out of the role in a sense when you've done it well, you've grown out of the role of being the one who's, who's kind of holding all the guardrails. And I just think it's scary to let up on some of those guardrails. It's scary to watch them make mistakes. It's scary to recognize our limited control. And when we get regressed enough as in anxious enough, we want to go in and imagine we do have more control than we do. And so our advice is not that helpful and they can pick up on our anxiety or frustration And because kids are trying to self-author and differentiate from their parents, they, they want to push away from that. Uh, Even sometimes to a, you know, even if they get the same advice from a parent's friend, the friend of a parent or something, I mean, a a friend's parent, that then they might take it where when it's coming from you, they resist it. So it's, it's a natural separation that's happening, but one that just is, you know, parents and ch- kids deserve some compassion around that. It's a, it's growing out of an old role towards a new role, and it's a messy. It can be a messy process, but I tend to do better. I think when I remind myself that my children are wonderful children, just on their own. Okay, like they just are good people. They have limitations, like we all do, and my job is to just love them and care about them, and for them to know that they have you know, one person or both their parents, two people that, that care about them, no matter what, that's my job. I mean, now my kids are all now fully adults as of a couple of days ago. So that that's a little bit different than adolescence, which is in this more in-between space, which can be difficult, but just reminding myself of what my job is and what it isn't helps a lot because it puts the anxiety where it belongs which is on my kids' shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> that feels so much better. I love the way oh, yeah, you said that. Sure. <laughs> Delegate the anxiety to them. Seriously. That's brilliant. Why have we not figured this out? I'm so much more stoked about being a parent now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Jenner, I, Dr. Jenner, I'm thinking about this situation, so I'm trying to apply these, you know, this self-authorship and personal authority. Let's, let's apply it to a situation. So a child who wants to add... TikTok to their phone, right? It's an Mm -hmm. app they haven't been allowed and now they want it. And there's this argument that kind of ensues about, you know, should we allow TikTok as an app on a phone type of a thing? 
yeah. if you don't mind, apply some of their principles and do some sure. coaching in that type of a situational. And how old is the kid? Just to give some. Let's say 15. A, a middle team. Yeah, that's a tricky. Okay, tricky question. I mean, um, the way I would think about it, and believe me, I, I don't feel like I've got these questions all worked out because these were so many of the same questions, you know, we were grappling with, which is how much autonomy to give and how much autonomy, especially when it's something that you don't control the content of, right? So you're kind of giving your kids a portal into a whole world. You know, it used to be, can I go to the mall? Okay, you at least kind of know what's at the mall, more right. or less, okay? <laughs> but now it's like, can I have access to this online world that as a parent, you have very limited understanding of what they're able to access. At the same time, you want your kids to be able to navigate an online world because that's the world we currently live in. I think what makes this especially challenging at present is that there are not sufficient regulations in social media and online platforms for underage children. And so because of that, you know, it used to be, well, well, it is, I think like on television and stuff, they basically said during daytime hours, you can't sell products to kids in a certain way. You can't do sexual advertisements. You can't. So there was protections that are built into a media form, but we've been slow at creating that. And so a lot of parents feel like failures when it's not really the parent's problem, there is a problem of access that our kids are struggling under. It's not going well for them. And yet there's so much pressure on parents to say yes to these platforms. So, I mean, I first of all just think parents have to be kind of compassionate towards themselves around the fact that we've stumbled into this whole world of access that grownups are struggling with, not to mention children. And figuring out how to parent around that is no small task. Um, my my general sense is, is that the biggest burden should be around regulation, like in the larger sense, because parents don't have the time and ability. The second thing is that given that there isn't, at what point can I, you know, basically, get, what the goal is, is how do I give my kids some autonomy that if they're able to use it well, can have more autonomy? Right? or if they're not able to get their homework done or they're using their phone in the middle of the night or whatever, then their autonomy should be constricted, ideally. So then I think the question is like, well, TikTok, what do I think is the risk of that, adding that particular app? Is there a risk? And is there some way to set up expectations? Right? We, with our kids, have like a contract around a phone is a privilege, these things are a privilege, Dad and I can ask to look at it at any time because you're being given access to a privilege, right? And we'll look at it with you there or whatever, but we just need to be aware of what's going on to be able to be good parents to you. And so they understood this was not an entitlement, but something that was granted to them to the degree that they were using it responsibly, but also to look out for any online bullying and that kind of thing, just to be aware of what kinds of interactions your kids were having with other people online. And so we would just check in periodically with their phones and just see how things were going. Did you get pushback where they said, but mom, you don't, you don't trust me. I didn't ever really get that, but I think that's because we set it up in the beginning as that that's just how it will go. And in a few situations, it was actually very, 
positive. Like I think, you know, in one situation, I'll just I'll do I'll keep the gender neutral just to keep the privacy. But you know, they were a little resistant, but also relieved because I became aware of some bullying that was happening towards my child. But I also was able to see how my child was handling it, which was very good information, how friends also stepped in and defended and kind of put the bullying person in their place. But it just allowed me to kind of be aware, talk through it, and ask if they needed any help with it, if there's anything I could do. So I wasn't just rushing in to solve it or go call the bully's parents, and you know, because I, I think what they were nervous about a little bit was, don't make this worse for me. Yeah, don't embarrass me. <laughs> don't, exactly. But on the other hand, I think took relief in feeling like, okay, I would have been embarrassed to tell you, but because you're kind of helping me hold my dignity and think through it. And I was able to check in a little later. So it's just, you know, being able to still be this caring parent while they're navigating autonomy and relationships when it's not going to go well sometimes and being able to track it, their vulnerability and their strengths. Because a lot of times I was actually very struck by my kids' strengths, like, like their clarity about things. And, um, cause it just helped me know them better as well, know where they might be vulnerable, know where they weren't, but because it was just kind of built in to the assumption, um, that made it easier. I love how you're saying that I'm having this light bulb moment about guided autonomy, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> like bumpers. And yeah, I, exactly. I've thought of autonomy as either someone is giving their child the ability for autonomy or not. And I haven't yeah. really thought of. Like, That's right. And if you think about how we do it as parents, we always are kind of increasing our kids' agency Mm -hmm. and autonomy as they become able to handle it or as they're almost able to handle it. And then we kind of give them a new level of challenge. It can be tricky in adolescence because the kids want full autonomy. Like they want to be like their friends. They're over their parents. They're like, you guys are, you know, (laughs) you know, one of my favorite book titles is, um, get out of my life, but first, can you take me and Cheryl to the mall? (laughs) (laughs) And it captures a lot. And the credit card. (laughs) And I want the credit card. Exactly. Exactly. Which is, I know I'm still dependent on you, but I want to push against you. And that's a very typical struggle. Like don't go too far, but I want to push against you. Uh, I've heard another person talk about it. It's like when you're on this ride at at Six Flags or whatever, you want to know that bar is going to stay steady, right? Mm -hmm. So you're not ready for full autonomy, but you need more autonomy, Mm -hmm. but you need to know certain things will just stay steady. And your child will disagree with you and talk about tolerating invalidation. They will argue why you are wrong. And of course you want to consider if you really think you're being overly rigid. Okay. You, you, you want to have private conversations, you know, with your partner or with yourself around that and make a better decision if you think it's merited, but you don't want to just give into something because you're getting pushback because if you're doing it to keep your child happy with you, your child will track that as my parent cares more about validation than me. And I, I remember my parents holding certain limits where I was just like, no, that's wrong. I can't believe it. Why are you saying that? But inside secretly, I felt 
grateful because I felt like they were, first of all, allowing me to make them the problem to my friends, not me. But also it just felt like they really cared about my safety and well-being. Um, and they were just going to hold on to that, even though I was pushing back on them. And that was sort of an indication that I it was a strange feeling for me. I remember thinking it, but like, that means that they really care about me. And so um, I didn't go tell them that I saw it that way because, <laughs> you know, I was ambivalent about them holding rules. But <laughs> of course. <clears throat> but I think it is reassuring for kids. And, you know, I've had some of my own kids say to me later, you know, I appreciate because I could tell that you were really trying to do what was best. And, you know, I appreciate that. So even if we get it wrong, they can feel that. That's so great. You talk about the system, right? The giving access to the app is one thing with full autonomy. It's another one to kind of line upon line, coach them through yeah. full autonomy. One of the things that I caught on to that you described in a podcast um, at one point, you said some people are as seen, some people are seen as low functioning when mm. they really are a part of a system that may be causing yeah. the low yeah. function. And so is that the case to a certain extent? I mean, when I think of Liza and I, our first go around, our oldest son, we gave him a phone and then often we found ourselves hitting him over the head with the phone we gave him, you know, right. like we gave you the phone and why aren't you getting it right? And it's like, yeah. well, because he never learned how yeah. to get it right. It really was just an, a black or white, all, all perfect yeah. or, or, you know, all dysfunction type of a thing. Yes, exactly. So the question is, are we setting our kids up for success? On the other hand, you know, I have a child with special needs, my oldest, and, you know, I was producing lower functioning in him out of my overparenting. So I remember, you know, we would, he had to catch a bus on his own to go to a different campus. Uh, he had been at a school for special needs kids, and now he was going to the regular high school, which was a big step for him. And he was catching this bus, and so we would get up and make sure he was up and make sure he had what he needed, and we were just like, you know you know, walking him to the bus stop, all that stuff when he was a freshman. Well, not every morning, but we did it at first. Then one morning, my husband and I just completely sleep in and we panicked, wake up. He's gone. He'd already gotten his lunch and he'd called home and wanted to let us know that the dog was in the yard, but hadn't been brought back into the house. <laughs> so like completely responsible. Awesome. <laughs> and, and, and here I was like, oh my gosh, like we are doing way more than he needs us to do. And he just proved it because he completely handled that on his own and called home to let us know about the dog. Right. Yeah. So it was kind of a wake up call that we're producing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd be a little nice to ourselves, but like we thought we were doing what was needed, but we were doing more than is needed uh, out of our own anxiety mm -hmm. and in a sense backing off and letting him find his own strength. When you think about him finding his own strength, dovetail into this concept of fitting in versus belonging because it mm. seems like at the very core of this concept is confidence self-esteem the ability to believe in oneself is mm -hmm. is a defining difference yeah. between fitting in versus belonging that's right yeah so i mean i think when we let our kids struggle not because we don't care and, and can't be bothered to be involved, but because we believe in them, we're telegraphing a really important idea that even when they're out struggling, 
right? And they're trying to figure out where that bus is and they forgot their code or whatever is going on, right? That they have this idea of, I am able, you know, someone knows and believes in me. And even though this is difficult, I can figure this out. They're like borrowing a view of themselves that you have. And I think that the more you know this in your own life, the more you can believe in it in your child's life, right? So there's times where I feel protective when one of my kids is struggling with a peer or something's going wrong. And I just have to remind myself, like, this is exactly where I figured out how to have more confidence in myself and not have to rush for validation around me. So let them have their struggle. This belongs to them. This is part of their dignity. And so just to care about them in the struggle, but to let them have it to sort out who they're going to be around that. And, you know, you can say, like, I found in my own life this helped. You can give input, but you really aren't getting unclear about whose job it is, whose problem it belongs to. Mm -hmm. And that builds self-confidence, you know, the ability to say, I don't need to apologize for who I am. I don't just have to do what makes people comfortable with me. I can belong to my own dignity and I will be loved. When, we, when you come out of a family where you feel like you're only loved conditionally, you get validation when you're doing what others want, you're going to have a strong intuitive sense that fitting in is going to be the only way to have people think good things about you. Where when you know you're loved for just the core of who you are, you have more confidence that I can actually belong, right? That I can be loved and chosen for who I am, not because I reinforce someone else. And so it sets our kids up for what kind of a relationship, what kind of an intimate relationship to expect. I'm a little mind blown right now, even hearing you say it, and I've heard you describe these before, but you know, one of the things that you have said several podcasts on this concept of fitting in versus belonging is if we betray ourselves to fit in, we will never belong. And as I look back on my own life, I mean, I'm now midlife, you know, mid, mid forties. And there is some key decisions that I think that I made late teens, early twenties, where I was, it wasn't, it wasn't a decision that I made, um, in a position of strength, I did it to fit in. And at right. the time it was a good decision. You know, there were positives right. that came from it, but now later yep. on in life, 20 years later, around that decision, I still harbor feelings of resentment. Yes, yes, and is yes. that the byproduct we're talking about? Yes, that it is a byproduct. Yep. So, so first of all, it's not unusual at age 18 to still be preoccupied with fitting in like self-authorship begins kind of if everything's going well around, you know, age 17, 18, um, because we're still very much, we're maybe looking to peers more than parents, but we're still very much trying to figure out who I am, you know, who am I and am I acceptable to others mm -hmm. to begin to lean on the question of what do I desire and what do I, what do I want to create of my, in my life is just beginning at that stage. Um, and so we're very malleable, like we can be pressured and pushed by parents or other important people in our lives to do what they say 
will make you legitimate. And all societies do this, all cultures do this, you know, depends on which groups you belong to, but you're going to be very vulnerable to fulfilling what other people tell you will make you sufficient. Um, and we can all feel resentment about that to some degree because, well, especially if it was more in the service of someone else's interests, not really yours, right? That can create feelings of anger because you feel like I got hijacked around my need for approval to fulfill other people's values. Yeah. And so that can feel uh, difficult, um, even though we may not have yet been in a position to really choose differently at that point, because we didn't yet know our own minds enough to choose our own path. And that's a process, and it's a pro it's a it's not a clean process. It's often borrowing what other people say, and then figuring out, okay, you know, basically when you're in that adolescent phase, it's like you believe like your group believes, whatever those mores are, whatever group you belong to. As you start to self-author, if you do, because most of the population never does, then it goes from you know who do you want me to be to who do I want me to be right? What do you want me to believe to what do I believe? And again, it's not rebellious, but it's self, it's a self-honesty process and you're figuring out who am I in all of this. But again, it means risking disapproval, risking not fitting in. And it's scary. You know, I, I know in my own life, I had to kind of, if I was going to be honest with myself, it meant claiming things or not claiming things people thought I should. Mm -hmm. And I like to be liked and I love validation and so on. And I, I was afraid of giving that up to live more honestly. Um, but it helped me to believe in a God who valued my honesty over my compliance. And so that helped me to start getting clear about my own mind, you know, while holding on to things in my group and community that mattered to me and I knew were strengths while letting go of things that I thought were not sufficiently, um, that I didn't believe sufficiently to really claim as my own. Do you have a process or steps that help people get beyond the resentment that they feel with regards to that? Well, I don't know if I have steps. I do have thoughts about it. I mean, one is that, so here's my first thought, is that it's okay to have anger about things like that. You know, it's just okay if you feel like, you know, I had a client who just felt like he'd basically done what his mom wanted him to do for a career, married the woman his mom wanted him to marry. Basically, had just kind of done everything, and now he's sort of in this life that was never his never had never chosen it and there was enormous pressure and so to feel anger about that is legit I mean I guess I'll just start with that okay? yeah. like you, you know I got hijacked I, I got pressured and I just wasn't I was too vulnerable I wasn't in a position yet to be able to think for myself and so I just fulfilled other I'm living other people's lives and that is upsetting to me because I'm now ensconced in that life um, so it's legitimate and I think that the, how to say it, 
you know, some families do this much more than other families. That is to say, so you, you know, it, it could be your specific culture, but it can also be how did my family handle these ideas and how much of a cost was there? So kind of looking at where did this come from that it was hard for me to claim my own mind? Was it from the outside or was there aspects that were also on the inside from me that I was afraid to define my own life and it's just easier to resent now? Does that make sense? So I've sometimes yeah. worked with people like they're in a marriage and they married somebody that was rather dominant. And then, you know, they, they just, I'll do it in the, the way that the guy's the dominant one. So, and so then she just kind of goes along and supports his life and supports his career and so on. And then she kind of at a certain point just gets so loaded with resentment that she's just angry and bitter and doesn't know she loves him anymore and wants to make it all his fault. But if she's honest, it was a co-constructed reality. She wanted to fold into, she didn't want the agency of her life. She wanted to support somebody else's life because then she could get away from her own anxieties about forging her own path. And so while it was a place to hide, right, and maybe the husband took advantage of that anxiety in her, she also was complicit in creating a, a reality in which she didn't take risks. So I think the second step, if I was going to put that, is to kind of look at your own role in being complicit in it. Now, it doesn't mean that you have nothing to be upset about. It just means where did that where did I kind of self-betray and go along because I was afraid to live more honestly? Hmm. So Dr. Um, Jennifer, to build yeah. on that example, if, if we were to kind of go back and say, so this may be a teen, to use your example, a teen girl who was raised in a household, very little self-authorship, not allowed to have a lot of personal authority, Right. mostly controlled, you know, the way in, in the way that the parents were interacting with her. And then right. one day she wakes up and all of a sudden, you know, dream guy of her life, 21 years old, gets married. And so she's fitting in, right? She's fitting into yeah. the narrative that she yeah. was taught to do and become. And so she fits into it. You know, that narrative is there and she chooses it. But it someday wakes up and goes, but do I belong to me? Right. I still belong or I fit into all of the rules and how I was taught to do things. But now I'm waking up to, do I feel belonging in my own life? And I'm Preston, I think that's what you're really saying is that you can almost see where it was built. The resentment was built along the way. It was an that's environmental type you know, yeah. situation that built it. That's right. Yeah. And, and yeah, people often wake up and they are upset and they're like, wait a minute, I'm living other people's lives. I'm not living my life and I'm over it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, a lot of times one of the reasons we do go along is because the promise of validation fitting in a perceived security. So we're trying to solve something, but we suddenly wake up and realize it didn't solve it. I'm not better off for having betrayed aspects of myself. A very tempting next move is to go from compliance into defiance and be like, yeah, screw everybody. I'm doing, I'm taking care of myself now, you know, like, <laughs> uh, which is not, you know, it's a very understandable swing, but it's, 
it's still easier than self-defining because if you can put it in anger and rebellion, you're still a, tethered to the external authority, but now you're just pushing against it. We do have to do a little bit of that, I think. It's, it's kind of like a late adolescent move. You know, this is what adolescents do when things are going well, is they start pushing against the authority, and then that gives them some of the muscles to, to start to self-author. But we can get stuck in that pushing against and kind of confusing it for claiming a life that has an internalized morality and a claiming a life that we genuinely respect and feel good about given that we're in a context that maybe we wouldn't have chosen if we had done everything from a deeper self-authorship from the beginning, but we're now in a context that's already exists. And who am I going to be in the face of that? So good. So good. Masterclass. <clears throat> Absolutely. Dr. Jennifer, I'm interested to know maybe as we kind of, wind down a little bit, but you spend so much time helping people in their hurt, you know, kind of the stuck positions of life to mm. a certain extent. It's not, you know, all negative per se, but mm. how do you personally stay stoked? How do you stay mm. stoked about, you know, this, the work that you're doing? It's kind of interesting, but like, I, I've always kind of been an optimist. I think I got a lot of this from my mother actually. Um, because I see a lot of dark in humanity. Um, we all are capable of doing, you know, to, to kind of yielding to our lesser selves. But human beings are remarkable. I mean, human beings do courageous, amazing things. And I, I think I really am inspired by watching people I work with do really courageous things, like be honest at a level that they've been terrified to be in the past, to start bringing more of their honest selves into their marriages, to start loving, like confronting their own, you know, preoccupation with, am I loved by you, rather than their preoccupation with, do I love my partner? And do I really take his or her well-being into consideration? And watching people kind of push themselves to be better is ridiculously motivating for me. Like, it just makes me be inspired by other people and expect more of myself as well. Um, and so it is the antidote to the dark. Cause I also do see people do dark things, cruel things, self-justified things, colluding with others in doing indecent things. And, you know, it's like being aware that human beings we're capable of both and kind of what are we going to follow the things that like push us to grow, to be better, to kind of, push for the best in us or are we going to kind of capitulate to the hateful part of us, the self reinforcing part of us. And that's just a kind of ongoing question that we answer every single day. And I think, I guess I, I just have in the work I do, you know, can really see this kind of internal order that exists in human experience. And which is very different than a God that's like telling you where your keys are. I, I don't have as much confidence in that idea or that we're being kind of micromanaged at that level, but that if we kind of push ourselves to live truthfully, to 
choose courage over our fear, right? We really do create more light in our lives and in our relationships. And so watching that happen with people is deeply encouraging for me. Well, we definitely are stoked that you, for one, are in the industry and loving and lifting people and relationships because it's so incredibly valuable. When I think about my own life, you know, my greatest fulfillment truly is my relationship with Liza. I'm happiest when that relationship is strong and sound. Having said that, the hardest work I believe that we will ever do, she and I, in our lives is having a good marriage. It's incredibly hard work. You know, in in the coaching world, Preston and I are used to telling, you know, our student athletes, you know, lean into the good hurt and relationships is the good hurt. It's, it's, it hurts. It's hard, but it's a good, there's a positivity in the outcome of it. So yeah, it's a soul stretching relationship. Um, I've said this a few times, but my brother was just talking about like how different men and women are and kind of, you know, like, and I, you know, and he was just kind of complaining about that. And I'm like, look, when man marries a woman and a woman marries a man, like they're, they're setting themselves up for some struggle. Okay. Because they're very, very different. Now, the reason why women don't go just marry a girlfriend is because it's not exciting. There's nothing interesting. You're already too much like each other we're drawn to difference, but then we can quickly resent those differences as opposed to (laughs) there's a beauty in it because it's pushing us to step outside of our self-reinforced view of reality and think about what does it mean to love this frustrating other, (laughs) okay? This person that I just, if they were just like, more like me, everything would be a lot better, okay? but you know, how do I actually love that person? And what can I actually learn from that person? I mean, that's the thing is that when I sort of stopped resisting my husband, I started like learning a lot more about, about, I don't know, about life, about myself, about, you know, being able to learn, borrow his wisdom in many ways about living life in a different way than I do. And just letting that process grow us into kind of broader, better, wiser people. Uh, but you could, it's, it never feels good that we can just resent, you know, we, we love resentment. Resentment's like, I was entitled to an easy life. Oh, this is just to go back to your resentment thing. I think it's, it's certainly okay to be frustrated about feeling like people pressured you, but it's also so fundamental to the human condition that in a little bit, it's like, it's just how it goes. I mean, it went in a certain way in my group and my family, but other people in other groups and other families are dealing with the same human struggle because we like validation. We easily pressure the people around us to like the same things we like and want what we want and live the lives that we've lived. I remember listening to some kid on NPR on All Things Considered years ago, and his father was a vocal atheist and was out, you know, advocating for like taking prayer out of school and so on. And they interviewed the 12 year old and he's like, well, I secretly believe in God and I know it gets my dad upset, but I, you know, I secretly pray. So I just thought it was kind of cute because (laughs) here he is like trying to belong to his own mind, but he's feeling all this pressure to fit into a certain way of thinking and believing by his father, who's supposedly standing up for the freedom of thought. So it's, you know, it's just, we do it as human beings. And the more we can kind of recognize how limited the world is that we live in, 
that maybe we get better at forgiving it a little bit for being what it is. To finish off, maybe um, I, I'm I'm intrigued. Is you know maybe to let you freestyle for a second on a couple things, but you know our daughter is um, is 19 and she has lots of questions right now about is anybody really happily married? She mm-hmm. sees it a lot around her, you know, just yeah. the recognition of that. She sees it on social media, TV, whatever. But her, her question is a valid one. And as you kind of think about, you know, the idea of, you know, maybe the older teen or the adolescent looking at relationships or marriages and thinking, again, to this concept of fitting in versus belonging, fitting in may be, well, I want to fit in, real, you know, to a relationship at some point, but it looks really hard or it may not look very yeah. attractive to me. Sure. Versus, you know, I mean, the Surgeon General in the United States right now is basically saying, you know, everybody is lonely. Teens are lonely. There's a, you know, there's incredible statistics right now about, you know, mental health in our country. I think that there's a longing for belonging. And yet it's hard to see good examples of relationships. So would you freestyle on that a little bit? Just your thoughts on those things? Yeah, so... It's a good one. I mean, it's been the biggest struggle, I think, is just how isolated people are behind screens and so on, and that people aren't just going down and doing Girl Scouts in the way they used to, like just going and doing these communal things because they can kind of self-entertain on their screens, but people are paying a big price for it. But yes, to your daughter, I mean, it's a legit question. I had the same question at 19, and that's why I was almost 30 when I got married, because there was a lot of people talking about how great marriage is. And then I could just see all these miserable people around me. <laughs> I was like, I don't know that I want to buy into that. That doesn't look like a good time. On the other hand, how many people are happy that are single? Okay. Or happy that are in non-monogamous relationships. You know, being happy is, is a life project and figuring out how to live well is a life project. And I think the data supports the people that are happiest are in happy marriages. And so it, it, it speaks to how do I do it well? I mean, I, I agree with your daughter. Don't just take it as a given. Don't just take it like get married and therefore you'll be happy because, you know, there are some people that are easier to be happy with than others. And so I think it's a worthwhile project to engage in. The statistics seem to show. But you also want to make sure that you are the kind of person that can be happily married. And that you marry somebody who can do that with you. And one of the key skills, I think, is the willingness to look at yourself honestly. Because if you're not willing and able to look at yourself and your impact on a partner um, and you want to blame them or deny what they see because they are able to talk to you about how your limitations hurt, if you're not willing to take that honestly and really consider it and be willing to repent, change, grow, right, you're going to cause suffering, to, and not just to your partner, but to yourself via a, a marriage that's in distress. And so, you know, I've said to my kids, like the number one thing is being able and willing to be, to self-confront, like be aware of yourself and to be able to apologize and do differently, do better, and to marry someone who can do the same. You know, like I I sometimes work with couples where they will fight about what is actual reality for days at a time. (laughs) Because rather than self-confront, they will twist 
reality and they will dig down in their position and, you know, fight till the death thinking they're prevailing when really they're destroying everything mm -hmm. that actually supports happiness. Mm -hmm. And so if, if our egos are more important than what's true, we're going to suffer. If you can make what's true more important than your ego in marriage, you're going to do okay. You know, when you have two of you doing it. So you want to be dating long enough to see how you handle as a couple invalidation, the gaps in a relationship. You know, we want the together points, but the big question, you know, the thesis of my strengthening your relationship course is basically how do you handle not getting what you want? Because how you handle not getting what you want basically determines the marriage. Amen. Yeah, serious. Wow. <laughs> For those who just heard that point, uh, Dr. Jennifer has several dates for retreats and getaways and lots of online learning um, that are about to come out. And those spots for those retreats, especially the European awesome, you know, destinations go quickly. So check them out online and um, social media. Anything else, Dr. Jennifer, you'd love to leave our audience with today? Well, I would say just to, to your point, just make if you go to my website, you can see there a place to sign up for emails, and that way you'll be notified. I know that the, the European retreats have just opened up, and they might be full already. I really don't know because they fill so quickly. But you, this is where I, I love teaching. So I'm I'm a licensed counselor, but I do a lot of teaching and coaching because it's just a way of making these principles more accessible for people. So I'm not doing mental health counseling currently, just you know coaching. And the European trips and then these intensives that I do, um, which we'll have some in, in Utah and Arizona next spring, where I'm working over three days with couples around these principles. So they're just a way for people to start looking at themselves without necessarily going to a therapist. I mean, yes, if you need one, but like you can learn a lot by just understanding, oh, crap, we do that. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and being able to see things that you couldn't see otherwise. The other thing that I think could be helpful for people is if you know you found the ideas that I'm talking about helpful. I have a podcast called Room for Two, where I'm working with couples around their marital challenges, and the couples are anonymous and their voices are distorted and so on. But they, you get to hear pretty normal marital challenges, and how I'm helping each person in the couple to kind of wake up to themselves and to see their role in what is causing the suffering and. You know, lots of good people are trying so hard, but they can't see what they're doing. And so to be able to see it is a huge gift because now they have just increased their agency because they now have the option to do something better. So um, so I think it's a great resource for people if they want to start looking at themselves better in their relationships and, and uh, doing a better job there. Dr. Jennifer, one last question from me, and then maybe, you know, Liza or Preston, if you have any, but what's the best relationship advice someone has given you? Oh, gosh, I think. Wow, I've got like two in my head, but... Um, um, I think they're both actually similar. Um, so let me see if I can efficiently say it. But in both cases, I was very preoccupied with the other person's behavior, not my own behavior. And wanting their behavior to be different 
And in both cases, it was like waking me up to my own impact and my own agency in changing the dynamic in the relationship. And so for me to stop being uh, a whiny victim <laughs> and to step into an adult position and to kind of own my own agency there and to be better, to, be, to do what was needed for the relationship to be better. And I think what was so powerful for me about that in both situations was that as I did step into a more grown up position, like the relationships got like, how to say it? Like it never really was the other person that much. It was really me. <laughs> and, and I mean, maybe it was a little bit the other person, but it's like, as I just sort of stepped into loving the other person, reaching out, being kinder, like everything changed in the dynamic and especially in how I felt about myself. So I think what was really powerful for me was like, I didn't like who I was being, but I was making it the other person's problem rather than being who I would like. Not only made the relationship go better, but I, I just liked the other person better because I liked who I was better in that dynamic. Through all of your schooling, your education, all of the classes or seminars you participated in, what, what topic is your favorite Sex. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> He's not kidding. <laughs> He's a hundred percent not kidding. <laughs> yeah. So what's my favorite topic and all those things? Hmm. I, I think I've always been very, very philosophically oriented. So I did a lot of philosophy in my PhD program, did a lot of thinking about the way people think thinking about what were the theories that were behind counseling theory, you know, because what, what were the theories of change? So I thought about that kind of thing a lot. And I loved thinking about that. And, and similarly also with theology. So, uh, you know, I love thinking about theology and kind of how we relate to religious ideas and which ones are strong and enable us to be better people and which ones kind of scare us and keep us limited so I, I love thinking about philosophy and theology. And so all classes that pointed me in that direction, I loved. Right on. Liza, any final questions for you? I have pages, pages <laughs> of notes and questions. So if I can put a plug in for you to make a master class for clinicians, I'm just going to. Yeah. Throw it out on your dock yeah. for years from now. Yeah. You said I'm so sure many that I will at some point. Yeah. yeah. And I volunteer Tom and I for room for two, and you can change our names to Preston and Natalie. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> oh, perfect. Now no one will know who you no, are. No one at all. Oh, no. I love it. I would love to play him. That would be a role no. I would take. Oh, oh boy. I love it. <laughs> Dr. Jennifer, this oh, has been a absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it.